All right, let's get this party started. <laughs> Good evening. Thank you, everybody, for coming out to our panel. Why should we be paying attention to the Supreme Court? I would like to introduce our panelists. So right here to my left, I have um, Attorney Robert Johnson, Dr. Christopher Banks, and Judge Carla Baldwin. Um, before we get started with questions, I'm going to let each panelist do a quick introduction of themselves, and then we will start with our moderated discussion. And I would like to start right here with Attorney Johnson. Okay, well, uh, good evening, everybody. So my name is Robert Johnson. I'm an attorney at uh, the law firm of Jones Day in Cleveland. Um, actually just started there and moved from D.C. about um, five months ago. I was doing constitutional litigation in D.C. before that for about four years. Um, and then a little bit before that, I clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Kennedy. So that's just like spending a year working with the justice in their chambers, um, helping them to um, do all the work that they do. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is Chris Banks. I'm a uh, Department of Political Science member at Kent State University. I uh, drove about 50 minutes to get here and never um, got lost uh, so much in my life in the last <laughs> 10 minutes. Hmm. Uh, but my area is American politics. I have a University of Virginia background and PhD there. I got my law degree over at the uh, University of Dayton uh, a long time ago. Practiced a little bit uh, before um, the Connecticut authorities uh, for about six years before I got my doctorate at uh, the University of Virginia. And my area of interest uh, and study is Supreme Court politics, judicial politics in general, law and courts, and I've written a few things on those topics. Good evening. I'm Judge Baldwin. I'm proud to serve you as your Youngstown Municipal Court Judge. I am in the second year of my first term. I preside over all offenses that occur in the city of Youngstown. I have complete jurisdiction over criminal matters of a misdemeanor level and traffic cases. I hear preliminary hearings and set bonds on all felony cases that occur in the city of Youngstown. I'm a former prosecutor, former magistrate, former adjunct instructor at Youngstown State University, and I hope you all have some good questions tonight. Well, thank you, panelists. Thank you for coming out. Um, I just want to start with a question about the Supreme Court in general. It's the ultimate federal appellate court. Appellate court. What issues do you guys see um, having a direct impact on Mahoning County? And I'll just let you guys answer it as you like. We don't have to go down the line. Um, well, so, you know, I don't know about Mahoning County in particular. I mean, I think that, you know, the issues the Supreme Court decides affect everybody in the country. Um, I don't know about, you know, here specifically more than anywhere else, but... You know, I think that the, the big issues that we're going to start seeing, there's going to be with, there's been a lot of change in personnel at the court um, with, you know, Justice Kennedy stepping down, with um, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh. Um, you know, huge changes, shifting from a court that is really sort of balanced on the knife edge to one that is much more of a conservative court. Um, there's going to, I think, be social issues that seemed like they were settled uh, in one way that are going to be coming back up and there's going to be movement on that. Um, you know, there's an abortion case out of Louisiana, for instance, that um, just recently the Supreme Court uh, granted a stay of Louisiana's law, so it can't go into effect. This law would essentially require that there, there are four doctors in Louisiana who can give a, can, are licensed to do abortions. Um, the state is saying that they're going to lose their license if they don't get admitting privileges at a hospital. Um, and so, you know, the, if that law goes into effect, a lot of people think that will basically mean that there are no doctors 
uh, in that state who can do abortions. Um, and I think that's, you know, just to give you a sense of the types of issues, that's an issue that the court hasn't taken yet, um, but that it, the case is before the Supreme Court right now, and it seems likely that they will. Uh, and I think there could be you know, movement all, on all those types of issues. Um, yeah, I concur. I think uh, it, it can't be specified to Mahoning County in general uh, when you start thinking about what is the impact on Mahoning County. I think uh, the, the law is uh, universally applied, and you have to pay attention to it. And on the Supreme Court level, there's a couple of cases that might have some interesting implications. One is, of course, partisan gerrymandering, which is going on at the court right now, uh, whether the court should uh, hear basically vote dilution cases that uh, come from people who feel like they're being uh, disallowed from carrying their equal weight to a vote. Uh, and there's a couple of cases involving um, that, which involves direct um, uh, understandings of how we're represented uh, in Congress and how the Ohio State Legislature affects that process and whether the process is too partisan. If it's too partisan, then the court starts to say, well, we shouldn't go into the political thicket. Uh, this is something that the court should not be dealing with. Uh, that goes back to a long-standing case, which has since been overruled in, in part by Baker versus Carr, 1961. But Colgrove versus Green said the court should not enter into these kinds of things because it's really a political judgment by the legislature. Uh, the court is revisiting that question a lot in the context of partisan gerrymandering. And the court has yet to come up with a good workable standard to understand what is really too political for the courts to be understanding it. And a lot of that comes down to packing and cracking, uh, the, the idea that the legislature is going to pack a whole bunch of voters into one particular place, and your candidate that you prefer will always win if that happens. Or if it's cracking, they're going to spread apart the um, votes and the potential votes, and so therefore you, for the people that you want to vote for, you'll never win for. So that's a direct representation question, which I think has a lot of things uh, to do with um, you and me as citizens, how we're really represented in Congress, and if the process is too political, uh, what role does the court actually play in um, correcting that situation? That's a huge question that has an immediate impact on, uh, on citizen rights. There are other things as well, but I'll kind of reserve that to later. Everything the Supreme Court does is final, and I think that's a point that should not be missed, and it goes back to the basic of basics of who you vote for who nominates individuals to be considered for federal judge, judgeships because those are life appointments. I run every six years. Once you're appointed to a federal seat, that is a life term. You stay until you're ready to go. And depending on past decisions, that kind of gives you an indicator as to what you can expect on future decisions. And I handle primarily criminal matters, and one of the cases that I was interested in reading was the Carpenter decision. And you don't think, nobody thinks about Carpenter. Carpenter was about search and seizure. We know there's a right to be secure in, our, in your personal person, your, your places, things. What about your cell phone? What about if a crime is committed and the cops want to go and get your cell phone? Should that have to be, do they need to get a warrant? Do you have any expectation of privacy? Well, the court found that you did. So a police officer ju just can't go to AT&T or Verizon or Sprint and say, give me their records. They knew they were driving out in the open. The court found that that is protected and that there has to be a standard of probable cause for that invasion to occur. That's the Supreme Court decision that all courts are bound by, even us here in Youngstown, Ohio. So all of their decisions matter, and it will always roll back to the basic decision of who you vote for. Gerrymandering, 
abortion, citizenship. It all goes back to your vote, so that's how powerful your vote is because who you vote for nominates those individuals who are confirmed and then make decisions that impact us for the rest of our lives, for some of us, because, again, it's life positions. Who's giving up their job as Supreme Court justice? I'm not. So their, their, their decisions matter, and it is important that we pay attention. Thank you. Um, taking a little bit away from what Judge Baldwin and the panelists were talking about, can you discuss the court system hierarchy and the importance of um, us as citizens, our vote, being tuned into federal and judicial nominations and the con- confirmation hearings? <laughs> Don't all answer it. Well, I can do the general structure. Uh, on the state side, you have your municipal and county courts. And we, we consider those the ER of the justice system. We get everything first. And then we have to assess the case and triage it and send it to the appropriate court. The felony courts are common police courts. Then if there's a, somebody argues with a decision made at the common pleas level, they take it to the court of appeals. And sometimes with the court of, different courts of appeals across the state, they differ about the same issue. So they take those issues to the Supreme Court because we need one decision. We need to know what is the law in the state of Ohio. If there's an argument at the, at the state Supreme Court, then they take that matter to the United States Supreme Court if they will hear the case. On the federal level, you have your district court. Then you have your court of appeals. And then the Supreme Court. So those systems are very similar in structure, but again, the Supreme Court of the United States is the final decider of all. There is no place to go after they reach their decision, and that's why you see most of their decisions are held and not overturned or changed for you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years or more, or more, because they are not going anywhere. And that's why what we do and what we see really matters about who's in those seats. I can add a little bit to that. If we're talking about judicial selection, and you've, you couched it in the phrase of confirmation politics. Uh, confirmation politics was greatly affected by Bork's defeat in 1987 on the federal level, where it really politicized the court to the point where interest groups started to rally against um, Judge Bork's nomination. If you remember, Judge Bork was nominated by Ronald Reagan, and he kind of uh, let the candidate uh, go, or the nominee go on uh, on his own little rants and raves about what constitutional law was and how it should be interpreted. But to liberals, he was uh, very much a threat because Bork did not believe in the concept of what is called unenumerated rights. That relates to things that are not listed in the Bill of Rights specifically, and judges then, if they don't have that constraint, have the discretion to just basically make up the law. And uh, for liberal activists, especially, um, Judge Bork was uh, going to leave a, a legacy of, of um, uh, very conservative jurisprudence that would tip the balance, especially on abortion law rights, because he was replacing Lewis Powell. And Lewis Powell was uh, a centrist, more or less, at that time. And when he left, the liberals thought that with Bork in place, abortion would go away. Doesn't that sound familiar about what's going on today? It's the same thing. It's just a replay. Uh, so when you're thinking about the confirmation politics, uh, it's been directly affected by Bork's defeat. And I think the Republicans have done a very, very good job in figuring out 
that the courts are really a good place to effectuate policy change ultimately if you get the right people in there, according from their perspective. And uh, with the Trump administration, you're seeing nothing but ideologues being put before the court, and those are the ones who are going to tip the balance um, against certain rights, including abortion rights. Uh, yeah, one thing I would add to that too is that you know there a lot of the focus on the confirmation process you know, from the public comes about when you have a Supreme Court vacancy and you know the Supreme Court confirmation hearings are big news and people actually you know actually watch them on TV and things like that. But those are by far not the only confirmation hearings. Um, you know, every federal judge goes through a similar type of hearing, uh, and there are many many federal judges across the country, both at the appellate level. You know, the intermediate circuit courts that hear appeals, and then also the trial courts, the district court judges. Um, and that process, too, has changed in an, ex- an extraordinary amount. Uh, I think probably one of the big developments, um, you know, for a long time there's been a tradition that the home state senators essentially have a veto over whether, um, you know, somebody is appointed to a judge position within that state. Um, and that's been... I think steadily eroding that practice, and the situation we have currently is, um, you know, for the intermediate appellate courts, that practice is is basically gone. Um, so, you know, here in Ohio, um, you know, if, say, for instance, uh, Senator Brown was not to want somebody to be put on the intermediate appellate court, he'd have no say over that. As long as there are enough senators who want to vote that person in, that that would be fine. Um, at the district court level, on the other hand, that, that's not the practice. So, um, you know, if you're appointing a trial court judge, a federal trial court judge, you have to actually have some sort of an agreement where um, that person has to be acceptable to, you know, the president and then to both of the senators for the state, um, which creates a, a really interesting dynamic, especially right now where people are, are maybe not getting along as well as they used to. And we have, you know, some vacancies in Ohio it's, and vacancies that are coming up. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, if people are even able to figure out who to put into those seats uh, and if people are going to be able to agree on who to put in those seats. Thank you. So a little more um, looking at the Supreme Court and, you know, being the federal appellate court. And we know that sometimes what happens is that states will make laws that have been left up to states unless they're challenged as being unconstitutional, they go to the Supreme Court and then they can apply to all the states such as gay marriage and things like of that nature. Do you see any cases, um, any especially pertaining to civil rights in the future that may be coming up um, uh, to the Supreme Court that they may be willing to hear in the next several years with the new uh, court dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of areas that are, there, things are going to be changing and things are going to be coming up. Um, you know, I think areas where we'll see definite movement, you know, that we haven't already mentioned. I mean, uh, criminal justice, I think, is one where we could see, you know, some movement. Um, I think there, you know, despite the, you know, you might think, well, with the sort of rightward movement of the court, that, that there would not be interest in those issues. But I think that, you know, Justice Gorsuch has kind of a libertarian bent to him that he might, um, you know, be willing to side with the liberals on the court. I think, you know, there are other justices as well. So you could see, a, you know, some movement on, um, on in that area. Um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of movement on religious liberty. Uh, that would not surprise me at all. Um, that the court is going to be much more open to claims of religious liberty 
Um, you know, there, I think one issue that may come up, there are a lot of states that have what are called Blaine Amendments, which essentially are provisions of the state constitution that require the state to uh, exclude religious organizations from generally applicable funding programs. So if you have a program, for instance, to fund educational programs, if you have a Catholic school, the Catholic school has to be excluded from that program. And these are provisions that have a they date back you know, over 100 years, and they really trace back to anti-Catholic um, sentiment that they wanted to exclude Catholics from these sorts of programs. I think that's, there's going to be challenges to those Blaine Amendments. I think there could be a movement to open up general programs to, uh, to religious institutions, which you know, obviously is controversial, but um, you know, that's going to be a major issue as well. I can add a few things. I mean, you, you talked about civil rights, right? Civil rights is a certain type of term. Uh, that involves usually questions of equality and whatnot under the 14th Amendment. No state shall deny an individual equal protection of the laws, uh, and that applies to the actions of the states. Uh, but civil rights and liberties is a little broader term, which involves individual liberty as well. Uh, I think there's at least two or three things you can think about in terms of future cases that are on the docket right now. And, of course, it's always in the context of federalism. When you think about that general concept, uh, that means that state laws and state um, action is going to be a little distinct from federal action as well and how do they interact with each other. So typically, if you look at one case, uh, for example, the new one that was just granted by the Supreme Court involving the Second Amendment, uh, and this involves a New York state law that uh, involves uh, transporting a locked, licensed, or a licensed, locked, and, and unloaded handgun uh, to a shooting range, basically, under the ordinance of New York uh, City. Uh, and you have to have a license to do that, which basically restricts uh, your movement of that particular uh, gun, even though it's unloaded in a locked container, to anywhere outside of the city limits. Uh, so that's being challenged on the basis of a case uh, called uh, Heller versus D.C. or D District of Columbia versus Heller, and its uh, counterpart, which is uh, McDonald versus City of Chicago, which uh, applied the right that was uh, found in Heller, which said that we all have a personal, uh, individual right under the Second Amendment to hold on to guns uh, in our home for the purpose of self-defense. That was the basic holding of it. And that's been applied to the states through the McDonald case. Uh, but if you look at that, this new law is being challenged um, in New York City about whether the uh, application of that transporting the gun to only certain places, is that affecting your right to travel? Is it affecting the Second Amendment in a, in a negative way? Uh, and those are the things that are bringing the state and the federal laws into intersection. I'll give one more example, which is uh, basically the one that was referred to a little bit earlier involving the abortion context. Uh, a new case, uh, which, uh, in fact, I don't want to steal the thunder from another question that's coming, uh, but there's a case called June Medicals. I think it's a June Medical? June Medical, uh, which um, basically uh, blocked the enforcement of a Louisiana law, which is called a trap law, T-R-A-P, which is targeted, um, targeted regulation against abortion providers. And that's the type of law that restricts uh, it, uh, uh, the abortion right, if you want to have access to it, to basically those physicians who have admitting privileges in a hospital close by to a clinic or thereabouts. So you have um, a location kind of restriction along with this admitting privileges restriction, which ultimately was blocked. But the, the point is that you're going to have a Louisiana law coming into conflict potentially with the abortion right in Roe, which is another intersection of, of, of the concept. And there are plenty of others. We'll get to those, I'm sure. Have anything, anybody want to add or? 
Now, I just want to make clear, as a judicial officer, I cannot speak on any pending legislation. Right. So anybody knows me knows I always have something to say, but <laughs> I like my job, so I'm going to stay quiet on this one. Yeah, we don't want to get the judge in trouble on that one. <laughs> um, can you guys talk a little bit about the voting dynamic when we talk about these cases that are going to come to the Supreme Court with the new dynamic, with the new court, with Kavanaugh and uh, Kidney stepping down? Um, how do you think in terms of, you know, we look at the Supreme Court in terms of liberal, moderate, and conservative with some of these issues, some of these controversial issues, such as abortion or, or gun control? Um, how do you think these positions or how this might impact or affect uh, society? Yeah, I mean, so I, th- I think it's important to, you know, say, I mean, most cases that the Supreme Court decides are actually unanimous. They're decided 9-0. Um, so... You know, there's a lot of talk about the controversial issues and the issues that the Supreme Court disagrees on. And those are definitely important issues and they're out there. But it's also important to realize that a lot of what they're doing is, you know, what the Chief Justice famously called, you know, calling balls and strikes, right? And that, that actually is a big part of what they do. I think it's also important to realize that, you know, not every case that is 5-4 is the same 5 and the same 4. Like, there are issues where you get surprising uh, sort of alliances among the justices. I mentioned that Justice Gorsuch, for instance, has a sort of uh, libertarian bent that I think you could, could see him coming out in surprising ways on you know, criminal justice issues, for instance. There are also um, you know, some of the justices who are regarded as liberal uh, who are uh, not liberal on those issues at all. You know, uh, uh, justice Breyer, for instance, tends, I think, not to be particularly liberal on criminal justice issues. Um, so you, know, you can see these kinds of uh, shifting alliances, and it doesn't necessarily depend on who they're appointed by. Um, that said, with all of that being said, I mean, definitely we are seeing some movement where, you know, there is a solid conservative majority on the court for the first time. I think Justice Kennedy was much more of a, um, he was a, a very a unique and person who had very unique views of how these cases should be decided, and um, the dynamic now is going to be much less Justice Kennedy kind of deciding what the answer should be and much more, I think, you know, the chief will be the swing vote, partly because he just is a very, he likes to move things very slowly. And I think it's going to be a question of the chief deciding how fast should things go. Right. Uh, that's a very lawyer-like answer. And I would certainly <laughs> totally agree with all of it, being half lawyer, even though I deny it all the time. I'm not really a lawyer. I, I'm not one of those. I'm a political scientist. It's a lot more fun to look at the 5-4 decisions. And the 5-4 decisions are where the ideology really comes out. And it is political uh, in terms of their stated political philosophy or judicial philosophy, as it's called. I mean, take, for example, the Heller case that I referred to earlier, the one that uh, interpreted the uh, Second Amendment as a uh, fundamental right. It was later called fundamental by five people in the McDonald case, uh, the conservatives, as a fundamental right uh, that is housed in a personal uh, right of possession, an individual right, not a collective right, uh, to own and possess a gun in the house for personal self-defense. The author of that opinion was Anton Scalia, who's no longer with us, and he wrote it on the uh, auspices of what is called originalism. That's interpreting the text of the Second Amendment in light of its um, original meaning in light of history. Sometimes it's called public understanding or original understanding, uh, but the idea is that you look at the words of the text and you interpret it in light of the history behind it and what what it's supposed to mean. 
Well, a fair reading of that case, as the dissent points out quite a bit, that um, maybe Justice Scalia was using originalism not in a way that would be in a restraint-oriented fashion, that you're deferring to the intent of the framers, for example, of the Second Amendment, but you're actually uh, making up the right. So if you look at the text of the Second Amendment, I can't quote it verbatim, but there's nowhere in that text that says that there is a right to personal self-defense in the home. Same thing could be said about Roe versus Wade, though. If you look at Roe versus Wade, that's built on a right to privacy, which was built on a case called Griswold versus Connecticut back in the 60s, uh, which established that there's a right of privacy in the 14th Amendment. Well, if you read the 14th Amendment, it says nothing about the right to privacy. It's not in there at all. And that became the basis for Roe versus Wade. So um, it depends on your philosophy and whether it's really being applied in the way that it's supposed to be applied. I would say that sometimes it's not always going that way. I'd, I'd use Justice Scalia as an example. I think he was making up the law in that context because there's no way you can read that text and say that there's a right of individual self-defense in the home. It doesn't say that. So he had to bring something to the table to interpret it that way. Uh, and the same could be said as a criticism of liberals, too, in, in applying it that way in the abortion context. Um, that really comes down to, do you believe in a textual interpretation, or do you believe in something else? As Thurgood Marshall would say, a living constitution. That, or Brennan would say, a, a living constitution. Brennan would say, as, a, as an argument against the originalists uh, and like-minded people, that it's arrogance cloaked as humility to pretend that you can believe that you can figure out what the framers' intent really is. That would be the criticism of the liberal against, or the living constitution folks against uh, those who uh, take more a strict textual view. So it comes down to, um, are you really doing what you're saying you're doing? And the political scientist to me would say that, yeah, maybe sometimes you are, but sometimes you're not. <laughs> I would agree. You sound just like my con, con law professor, Beery. <laughs> he would be very impressed with, your, with your, your spiel there because that's how we were taught, even... You either have justices who view the Constitution and it's as it was given in that day, or they see it as fluid and moving and changing and responsive to our ever-changing society. And yes, judges have the power to create law because their interpretation is powerful and it can change the course of history. So right now we're at a very interesting point where our current justices have the ability to, in a sense, rewrite history. And it'll be very interesting how those perspectives are applied and how they impact our future here in this country. All right, so I would also like to know, um, just from your guys' perspective, having you on the panel, and I know we're going to get to the uh, question and answer in a little bit, about what do you think is the, most is the most important thing to take away from this conversation? Why should we be paying attention to the Supreme Court? <laughs> I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say Merrick Garland. <laughs> That's the thing I would take away, uh, because what happened with uh, Judge Marlin, chief judge, judge of go. the District of Columbia, who was a moderate appointed by Obama, didn't get a hearing to replace uh, right. the seat of Scalia. Uh, that was unprecedented in the context of uh, not having a vote, an up or down vote, on a candidate well before um, the term ended for the president. So in another context, you could say that um, McConnell, Senate uh, Majority Leader, or now Minority Leader, uh, I'm sorry, Majority Leader uh, McConnell, says that elections uh, matter in terms of their consequences. Uh, I think he's right. So the thing I would take away from it is that if you don't like what's going on in the Supreme Court, vote, be active. And I suspect most of you people are. You're here. And I think that's a really good thing. <laughs> yeah. 
I agree completely. Your vote is your power. And it's bigger than right here in our hometown in the Valley. It trickles all the way to Washington, D.C. And who we vote for, for Congress, who we vote for in legislation, that has an impact because all the decisions that a few people make affect us all and affect us for a period that our kids and grandkids and great-grands will feel based on how we vote today. It is that crucial, and we have to stay tuned in. We can't get so frustrated. We check, check out. We have an obligation to the next generation. I, mean, I can't disagree with any of that. I, I guess I would add one thing to that, though, which I think, you know, there's a lot of, there is a lot of politics around the court, and I don't think that's you know, wrong. I mean, the, the way that people get on the court is um, they're chosen by the people we elect. So obviously it's a political process how these people get onto the court. At the same time, I think, I mean, I think there's a, a, the perception of the court in this country is shifting to viewing it as a, almost a political body. And I think that that is unfortunate and it's a problem. And I think it, there is, it is important to realize that the people who are on the court don't view it that way, that they view what they're doing as um, interpreting the law and that they, are, they do have different you know, views of how, that they should, how they should do that. And I think that the people in Congress and the presidents, uh, people who are elected president, they choose people who they line up with the results that they want. But I think, you know, you know, having clerked there, I've met everybody who's on the court. And I do think they're all honest people who are trying to do the job as best they can in the way that they think is the right way to do it. And I also think that they're, um, you know, like I said, there, that many of these cases do all, they all agree on the outcome. Even cases that, you know, if you're, if you're just voting on, you know, what, what do I think the, how the way the world should be organized, they might disagree, but they just, they are interpreting a law and they read the words and it, what it says is obvious and they think that they have to, that it has to come out one way and that's how they come out. Um, and that, you know, that really is, I think, the vast majority of what they're doing. And so it's not to say that, that it isn't a political or that you shouldn't vote, because of, of course you should vote. But I also think it's important to realize that the Supreme Court is more than just uh, a political body. Thank you. So I think now, for my directions, it is time for our question and answer. I have one job to do. Um, question and answers from the audience. And so... We have a microphone up. Don't all run up here at once, but uh, we have a microphone, and we will be taking questions from the audience. Thank you. Do you think the Supreme Court will uh, throw out gay marriage and abortion as you look at it today? You know, will they overturn it? Yeah, I can, I can offer an answer, perhaps. Uh, I don't know if it will be a direct overturning because the, the court's membership has certainly shifted with the last two appointments and Kennedy's re- replacement of Kavanaugh has certainly been decisive in that regard, potentially. But I think what they're likely to do is even um, what's been going on for a long time is with trap laws. Uh, there's, if you go back and you look at some of the data about how many states have and, uh, passed those kinds of laws, what the, I think the activists have tried to do, who are, who are anti-choice, are trying to uh, undermine Roe at its central holding uh, which is uh, now interpreted as being uh, through Casey, a case called Casey, as you can't put a substantial obstacle in front of a person or an undue burden in front of a person who wants to make a choice to have an abortion. Uh, so what, what the activists are doing are passing laws that make it increasingly hard for the access 
to happen and for the right to be exercised, which is exactly what's going on with the current debate that's going on before the Supreme Court right now uh, in terms of the uh, revisiting of a precedent a couple of terms ago in 2016 called uh, Whole uh, Women's Health, which was basically a Texas application of a, of a trap law which basically restricted abortion to uh, within 30 miles of those uh, the hospital that had uh, admitting privileges. Uh, so I think that's going to be the strategy, regardless of what goes on in the courts in terms of a direct challenge in overturning Roe. I think it's going to be whittled away, just like many other constitutional rights that have been whittled away. But if you think about the exceptions to the Miranda Rule, would be one example of that. I mean, there's plenty, plenty of examples saying that the police are going to have all sorts of authority to... Um, to um, self-incrimination kind of techniques uh, that allow people to, to basically um, testify against themselves. Because the Miranda Rule says that you're supposed to have certain rights uh, to an attorney, et cetera. You heard about that all in the, in the TV shows. Uh, but the court, since that time, have been against Miranda in the sense that um, it's trying to take away some of the impact of it by giving more power to the police. I think you're seeing the same thing in the abortion realm. You're going to see it across the board on all the controversial opinions. One thing I would add to that, though, is it's an abortion case out of Louisiana that we've been talking about. And the Chief Justice joined with the four liberals to grant a stay of that law, meaning that he voted with the liberals to say that it can't go into effect, at least as long as the Supreme Court is considering the question, um, with the other four you know, conservative members of the court voting to say that it should go into effect um, right away. And so, you know, that was, I think, surprising to a lot of people, and it suggests that, you know, these things are not, it's not set in stone how all of this is going to happen. And I think, you know, you do have the Chief Justice who's very much, um, you know, whatever his personal views might be, he just very much values consistency and not going too fast on change. And I think he values also that he wants people to see the court as more than just politics, and I think he thinks that's important. It's important for the country, and I think he's not going to go too fast, in part because he doesn't, he thinks, I think he sees the court as being too politicized, and he realizes that the faster they go on these sorts of things, the more that breeds that perception. So, you know, I, I think it's, I, I think less will change than people maybe are afraid or think will change. Um, with private for-profit prisons being a real big thing here in America, how is the judicial system interacting with these entities and how can change be brought about through the Supreme Court and how can people do, you know, what can people do to help make that happen? Yeah. You want to handle that one? That's a a huge issue. That's a huge issue, yeah. And, you know, that's that's one of those issues where, like I said, I think you can get surprising coalitions. I think, you know, there are some, um, you know, people like Justice Gorsuch. You know, we don't know what Justice Kavanaugh is going to be like yet, but I think he might be somebody who would be somewhat sympathetic on those issues. Justice Gorsuch definitely seems like he might be sympathetic on those issues. I think... You know, there, there is definite room for arguments on thing, issues like that that aren't strictly ideological, especially where you have the intersection between the private sector and the government. It can be very, um, you, know, you get these very problematic situations where um, you, know, you, you have private people who are not subject to the same constraints as the government 
and who also have different motivations in the government, um, stepping into the role of, for instance, running a prison, and that, that, can, that can create all kinds of issues, um, and there's all kinds of room for litigation there. Yeah, let me try to answer that in a different context. I mean, if you look at uh, the intersection of private rights and public responsibilities and whatnot, uh, there is an, uh, increasingly, uh, for political reasons, not non-ideological, um, the interest in reforming the criminal justice system. Whether that includes uh, private prisons, that's another issue, but it could be part of it. But if you think about um, some of the recent legislation that was passed in Congress and signed by Trump, uh, there is some reduction of mandatory uh, minimum sentencing guidelines and allowing more flexibility in determinate sentencing schemes. I think the judge could probably speak to that quite a bit. But this is a political reason or a political um, issue because I think Republicans increasingly have recognized that it costs a lot of money to put into um, prisons people for mass incarceration reasons. It takes a long time for them to get out. It's a great expenditure on their behalf, and it really doesn't do a whole lot of good to rehabilitate them. So I think at the end of the day, I think for cost reasons and political reasons, Republicans are now joining with Democrats uh, to try to reform some aspects of the criminal justice system uh, which involves uh, rehabilitation schemes and reducing mandatory sentencing uh, schemes and trying to give a little bit of a break to three strikes in your right, in your out kind of sentencing procedures. So you're seeing a little movement in, I think, a positive direction in trying to get in front of the crime problem instead of trying to just throw, uh, throw, throw away the key and lock them up forever. I, I would say something maybe even a little more optimistic. I think it's not just... Uh, a fiscal issue on the right. I think that there is actually a, a broad consensus on both sides, both both Republicans and Democrats, that there is a moral issue um, with mass incarceration in this country. And I think there are people on both sides of the political spectrum who see it that way. And unfortunately, there are people on both sides of the political spectrum who don't see it that way. Um, so it sort of transcends politics on both sides, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's just be real. It's big business. And it's going to take a while to change it because the system is structured around systems, not around people. And so this turn to move systems to be people-focused instead of systems-focused will not happen overnight. So I think we are moving in the right direction simply because everybody has to recognize that what we have been doing is not working. It'll just take one viewing of the documentary, the 13th, to see that. So I think there's now an acknowledgement at some level, but it will take a while to, to, to turn that process over. So kind of just in the past few years, the question's been tossed around with President Trump and the whole Russia debacle. But in a general sense, could a sitting president pardon themselves from a crime? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the obvious answer is sure. <laughs> sure he can. He can pretty much do anything and push the envelope until a court says otherwise. I mean, if that's a cynical kind of answer, but I think in theory it's a debate in constitutional law whether he can do that. It's really not resolved. Great question. You didn't chime in on that one? No. I, uh, we'll see. <laughs> or not. Okay. I was wondering... Uh, whether you can discuss the politicization, politicization, politicalization of the court through the Bush versus Gore decision, the Citizens United decision, and things of that nature, and where you think things might go in the future. You know, I think Bush v. Gore, I mean, gosh, the court probably wishes they had just never taken that case. <laughs> um, 
You know, I mean, I, like I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I, I just think you know the the court is not as political as people think. It both is and it is obviously. I mean, obviously politics matter, and they can't deny that. But a lot of this is, um, you know, the people who are there. I think sincerely believe on both sides that they're following the law. I think Citizens United is a great example. I, mean, I think the people on the on the in the majority on that case, they don't view it as like that they're. Um, that it's a political thing. I think they think that's what the First Amendment means. And I think, I'm sure the people on the opposite side view it just as sincerely that they think it's not what the First Amendment means. Um, you know, uh, the Citizens United is a, um, an interesting case. I mean, you, could, you can tell a story about, you, you hear Citizens United, I think um, there's a sort of popular narrative about it that, you know, it's about black money and politics and it's like, this um, very scary thing. On the other hand, you know, Citizens United was a case about can a bunch of citizens get together and pay to um, make a movie about a politician? And that's, that's literally what the facts of that case were about. You know, can the government prevent you from making a movie about Hillary Clinton um, with money that you've contributed? So, you know, I, I, I think it's a lot of, there's a lot of, I, I almost would call it hysteria around the Supreme Court and especially around the campaign finance issue. Well, I'll, I'll answer that in terms of Bush versus Gore. Um, a shameless plug, I've had two books on that. One is called Superintending Democ- Democracy, um, and the other one is called The Final Arbiter, which were written about Bush versus Gore and the implications of it. I, I think there's one of two ways you can look at it in terms of the, the outcome. Uh, on the one hand, you could agree with what the majority did, basically, uh, under the Rehnquist Court in stopping the election under a federal law in time. Uh, it was... Um, uh, something that was deemed by the chief justice and company as saying that uh, there's a crisis that we need to resolve the conflict between the electoral slates of votes that were for Gore and for Bush. We, and the court needed to step in. Uh, there's another side of the argument that says, well, um, you didn't have to do that because the 12th Amendment says that ultimately the decision is going to be rest in Congress. And you could say that there is no political um, question here, as the dissenters argued in the case. So it depends on which way you think about it. Institutionally, I would say that the court didn't need to really step in uh, in that particular instance, because at the end of the day, I think um, Bush would have won anyway if it went to Congress. It would have happened, but the political process did not play itself out because the court decided to step in, and that was uh, subject to a lot of criticism. In terms of politicalization of the court, that can mean a whole lot of different things. Uh, in terms of not only outcomes, but whether the influence is happening through the confirmation process, the selection process, the impact that interest groups have, uh, the personal and individual philosophies of the individual justices, whether they believe in restraint or activism, which are slippery terms, I would say, because I think a liberal is not always activist, and I think certainly a conservative could be activist as well, as I illustrated with the uh, Heller case. Uh, So it means a lot of different things. Is it a good thing? I'll say this one thing that I'm speaking to my colleague here um, and, and the idea that, um, that we are neutral in our thinking about politics in courts. Uh, of course, that's true. That's the way you're taught in law school, that politics is not really part of what you're thinking about. You're trying to generate a principle that you're thinking about, thinking about the law, and then applying it to facts. But uh, Roberts, in blocking and joining with the liberals, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in, um, in the asylum case, which, uh, in, in, which is ha- currently going in litigation before the Supreme Court ultimately, 
there was a comment by uh, Chief Justice Ro uh, Roberts on the record about a district court judge by the name of Tiger, I believe, uh, and, and uh, he didn't like that Trump called him uh, an Obama judge, right, the one who blocked the uh, enforcement of the asylum ban. So um, this is what Chief Justice Roberts said uh, and publicly. We do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their best, their level best, to do equal right to those appearing before them. That's the rhetoric. And to a certain degree, that's true. Of course it is. But I would disagree with my colleague in the sense that I think it is really political. And that's at the heart of it. Uh, I think that's why our votes mean everything. Because we decide who's going to be in the presidency, whether you believe in the Electoral College or not. Ultimately, we are the ones who are going to weigh in and show as a country whether we believe in that kind of appointment, whether it be Obama or whether it be Trump or anybody else. So I think it is political, and we should be very cognizant of that. It really makes a difference in law about how everybody's affected in terms of what the court is doing, whether they're agreeing or not in terms of unanimous cases or divided cases. Excuse me. Um, we, you talked about earlier about uh, people taking notice when it gets to the Supreme Court. Um, first of all, are all federal appointees or federal judges equal? And if not, do you think there is a certain area, country, or where it's going to come from that decisions are made on that level that will affect the country? And um, is there somebody that you might be able to point to or some district you might be able to point to that important decisions may come come from? Well, I can sort of answer that in the beginning, uh, that when you start thinking about what Trump uh, encountered when he first became uh, president, Something like 100 vacancies were before the federal court judges uh, in terms of uh, seats on the court. He had those to fill, and he has made a commitment along with McConnell to fill them, and he's done a really good job. I think if we look at um, their track record, ultimately, um, he's appointed more um, judges, at least in the early part of his presidency, than many other presidents have, and that's going to have a long-lasting impact on everybody in terms of their um, direct political impact on decision-making and civil rights. Uh, that's going to stay with it because uh, federal judges, Article Three judges, are on the bench for life. They don't go off unless they die, they're impeached, they are disabled, or they just voluntarily leave. And a lot of them don't do that. They stay there a long time. Uh, and as a result, they're going to be with, with us for the next 30 to 50 years. And what the Trump administration has done, along with other um, presidents as well, not just Trump, is look to younger appoint, appointees. So now you have 50 years and un, under as being the bellwether uh, for some of his um, appointments. Think about that. That's going to go on for 30 years unless they go away. And right now, when you think about specific regions, there's a liberal side uh, on the Ninth Circuit, which Trump uh, attacks quite a bit. But there's also now an increasingly movement of the circuits to go towards the conservative side. And that's going to continue to happen unless um, the appointments stop, which I don't see anything happening in the future that's going to stop that. I would recommend that anyone read uh, Answering the Call by retired federal judge Nathaniel Jones, who is a Youngstown native. He gives such an accurate and eloquent explanation of how we got here. He is a retired federal district court judge, circuit court of appeals judge out of Cincinnati, uh, where he um, stepped down from his seat. But his recounting of Youngstown in the 60s and 70s and how we got here and the impact of political judicial appointments 
it, it just opened my eyes as, as an attorney and now judge as to how we got here and it changed my perspective and focus as to the impact into the future. So I would recommend answering the call for just a great real-life explanation of the impact of the federal judicial system. And, you know, one, one thing I would add to that, too, in just terms of where are we going to see important decisions come from, I mean, it's, it's important to remember, you know, we have a, a state judge with us here, and a lot of important decisions do come from the state courts, and that's, um, you know, that's a very important part of the system as well. And there are a lot of, you know, one thing that people may not realize is that not only is there a federal constitution, but every state has its own constitution, and the state courts can interpret their own constitutions, and if people feel that the that the U.S. Supreme Court is not protective enough of certain rights. Well, you know, that one thing that can be done is, um, you know, the Ohio Supreme Court, for instance, can say that, well, we're going to protect rights more in Ohio than the U.S. Supreme Court does in the rest of the country. So, you know, that's another fo- thing that people can focus on. And, you know, in some ways, the, the federal judiciary may seem almost it's such a big thing that you can't really affect it, but the states, it's a little bit easier to bite off and chew. I can't uh, agree with that more, especially we, this panel is focusing on federal courts, but state courts uh, litigate most cases uh, in the United States, a far greater number than what happens on the federal level. But the federal level gets a lot more attention because it's a lot more interesting perhaps to others to kind of point to it and say, you know, that's what they're doing, and it's a lot easier to manage. But if you start looking at the selection systems across the states, um, there's something called the Merit Plan, which is uh, something that is enacted in a minority of states now, which is increasingly under attack, which tries to depoliticize the judicial selection process on the states, which, which basically means that uh, a judicial commission, which is appointed of laypersons and politicos and whatnot, uh, select a, um, a, a nominee from a list, or they actually come up with a list, uh, of potential nominees, and they give that to the governor, and the governor uh, then appoints, and then a uh, election is held, which is called a retention election, that basically says yes or no after a certain period of time that this person should continue to serve or not. Uh, the reality of that, though, is that even though that's supposedly depoliticizing things, the composition of the commission itself is political, and the political decision by the voters is political, and judges become political because they have to run for election. And if they're running for election, which most of uh, state judges do in the United States, there's influences of money, interest groups, personal and, and legal ideologies, and they start to do things uh, that um, announce their views, for example. And then that runs into judicial ethical problems. Should they be doing that? Should they be uh, going out and saying, I support abortion? or I support affirmative action, or I'm against capital punishment, because the neutrality of the judge is at issue there. So it is very political in every which way you look at it, especially on the state level, which I'd certainly concur with my colleague on that one. As uh, civil rights has expanded, and sometimes it regresses, can you historically tell me if there's backlash, political backlash from that, that you can trace directly to that? It seems to me that every time the court does anything that's a major change, there's political backlash, um, you know, in both directions. And absolutely, I mean, there's a long history of, and you look at the the Brown decision and and the backlash that uh, you know came after that. Um, absolutely. Yes, and I think over time, if you look at the New Deal, for example, we haven't talked about the Warren Court. Uh, which was a liberal court that progressed, uh, did a progressive agenda of um, equality rights and due process rights on the criminal side. 
Uh, those are the, the cases that produced Gideon versus Wainwright, um, Miranda versus Arizona, and, and others, which, um, and of course the voting rights cases uh, uh, that um, went for one man, one vote. And when you start thinking about the impact of that, uh, much of the political composition of the country, in a way, has shifted towards the middle and further to the right. And, of course, when you do that, you're going to have cases and challenges to what happened in the New Deal and what happened in the Warren Court. And those two things are on the, in, the, in the crosshairs of the Republicans, basically. They want to dismantle the uh, New Deal, and they want to take away some of the criminal and equality protections offered by the Warren Court, and ultimately that's been going on for a long period of time, beginning um, with Reagan, and it's continuing uh, with a brief respite with, I think, Obama and perhaps a little bit of Clinton. Hi. My question is about uh, future health care cases that might come through the court. Uh, so with the Affordable Care Act, uh, I believe it was determined that it was a tax, and therefore, because of the individual mandate, uh, Congress could pass a bill like that. Say um, Congress passes a bill dealing with something like Medicare for all, what would be the, some different ramifications that the court would have to consider? Mm. I mean, yeah, so in some ways Medicare for all, even though it might politically be more radical than you know the mandate, I think is a legal matter. It's We have Medicare, so it's been around a long time, so Medicare for all seems like it would be hard to challenge, although there might be issues that the insurance companies might raise. I mean, it's just imagining, you know, what would the insurance companies say if suddenly they are put out of business? Is, that, is there some sort of constitutional issue with saying, you know, you no longer have this business? It would, it would depend a lot on the details. You know, I, I think, I mean, look at uh, the, the ACA. I mean, I don't think anybody, when it was passed, expected that the major constitutional issue would be the, the individual mandate. And, and that was a constitutional theory that, um, you know, I think because it was so unique and so new that no one even knew what the constitutional issue was at first, you know. So, it, yeah, these sorts of things can be surprising, they, what comes up. Well, that was built on a template by uh, Mitch Romney when he was, um, um, I think it was Romney, in Massachusetts, uh, and the Republican plan became the template ultimately for the ACA. And I think um, uh, the individual mandate part um, was so offensive in terms of requiring someone to actually buy insurance, otherwise you're taxed, was so offensive that there became a, a real concerted effort to overturn it. And when the political cards were right and the, and the election results supported it, uh, they did pass the Tax Reform Act, which basically got rid of the individual mandate. But the fear, I think, of Republicans is that with the ACA, beyond the individual mandate, is that you have uh, a program that is going to be like Medicaid, which is an expansion, that it becomes an entitlement and really hard to get away from. Once you have it as an entitlement, it becomes like Social Security or anything else, it's going to be really hard to get rid of it. And I think that's going to be the case when you start thinking about it. Question. So we'll take you. You're the last one. Save the best one for last. No offense to anybody. <laughs> I'm from Michigan, and last fall we legalized marijuana. Where do you guys see that happening, or what do you see happening on the federal level for that? Yeah, so right now we have this very interesting situation where, you know, marijuana is still illegal, obviously, under federal law. 
um, both medical <laughs> and recreational. Um, at the same time, you know, you have all these states that are legalizing it, either recreational or uh, medical. And, you know, the, the sort of general rule is that federal law controls over state law. Um, but there's a sort of, so you would think that, the, that all of those state laws would basically just be um, meaningless because, you know, federal law controls. Um, but we have this very interesting situation where the federal government has basically said, well, we're not going to enforce this law that's on the books. Uh, and actually, there's, um, you know, when Congress appropriates money, uh, every uh, budget cycle for the past few budget cycles, they've included language in the budget basically saying that um, the government can't use any money to enforce the federal marijuana laws in states where it's been legalized, uh, so long as it's legal under state law. So it's, it's this very weird thing where it's both illegal, uh, but the government can't spend any money to uh, prosecute you for it. Um, that doesn't really seem sustainable to me. Uh, you know, it's, it, something has to change with that. And I think, you know, it's, that's just pure politics, what changes. But that, it's just not how the system works, to have something that is both legal and le- illegal at the same time. And it puts people in a very weird position. I mean, you know, if you are someone who has a, one of these businesses, for instance, I mean, there's no real reason why the government couldn't prosecute you and put you in jail for 30 years, you know. And it probably won't happen, but it could. Yeah. Yeah, I would add a couple of things to that. One would be the Department of Justice has to decide to um, prosecute you, right? Which is, um, and you see in other areas like immigration, uh, they, they've taken a different position than past administrations. So it's conceivable. It could happen. Uh, that's one element of it. The, the other one is uh, it really comes down to money. Uh, it's very profitable for the states to do uh, legalization of marijuana, and some states are reaping the benefits of that. And there is some research going on right now to see whether that's a good thing or not in terms of really increasing crime or doing other things that are bad. But ultimately, it comes down to money, not surprisingly, in the United States. Everything comes down to money. And if the states are really pressured to the point where they can get it before the voters in a way that makes sense... It could happen, but I think it's going to be slow. Yeah, and money there, too. I mean, you're, you're starting to see, that as, as there are companies that are in this business, they are starting to lobby for more legalization. And you actually have, um, you know, prominent Republican politicians who have been hired as, uh, or former politicians who have been hired as lobbyists for the marijuana industry. Uh, so, you know, this is an issue where the, the, the political landscape is changing very fast. And we've decriminalized it on the state level. So a personal possession of marijuana is not, no longer a jailable offense. Max fine is of $150. So that also plays the part on the impact uh, of doing anything with marijuana at both the state and federal level. Well, I would like to thank our panelists for coming out um, for this uh, City Club of Mahoney Valley Views and Brews. And this is going to conclude our panel. So thank everybody for coming here. And we are going to end it here. Thank you.